This is Chris from Don't Let Them Burn. Welcome to the program. This is Paranormal Shift, episode 11. And if it's your first time joining us, I hope you have a good time. We got a lot of information to pass out to you today. And But before we get into what we're going to do tonight, this Halloween night, is we're going to go to my store. And this is don't, the Don't Let Them Burn store. And where you can get a t-shirt to pretty much help the ministry. Got some good design. We have plenty more coming and some based on the programs that we're letting go, like Paranormal Shift, this one here, Reign of the Tech, Game Invaders, Political Edge, and all those. We'll have shirts coming out to um, represent those. Tonight's guest is Gary Wayne, and this is his book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. I'll show it uh, more than once, so you guys, could, if you're not familiar with it, you will be familiar with it by the end of the show, okay? So... Here we go. Gary, how are you doing? Doing very good and uh, so happy to be with you on All Hallows Eve. And we're going to talk uh, all things about that and anything else the chat wants to uh, bring up and talk about. So, uh, yeah, very happy to be here. And I think the topic is going to be eye-opening for a few people. Yes, sir. Good to have you. Um, yes, as you said, if you have questions, whether it's on Periscope, YouTube, or Facebook, go ahead and put the questions in as we move. This is going to be probably going to be a long program um, as, as much as Gary Wing can take, <laughs> right? So um, again, ask questions. Don't be afraid. We can handle it. Okay. So Gary, where, where do you want to take us? This is Halloween night. We usually hear the typical Halloween explanations and they're cool and everything going back to the Druids and whatnot, but we never get a full blown, a fleshed out interpretation of what went on and what's going on now so anywhere you want to take it so. sure why don't i just kind of set the table a little bit and maybe with some information and details that people may not be aware of and then we'll probably go back in and you know bring out some fleshy things about sort of the celtic aspect of it but the first thing for people to understand is that this is an ancient ancient a uh, set of rituals and holidays, uh, you know, called Sam Hen and a few other variations of that name or All Hallows Eve. But it goes right back into Greek history. It goes right back into Egyptian history. It goes back into all cultures of the world and all of the different polytheist religions and the pantheons. And they have this celebration. And in Greek mythology, which is very, very interesting because it's, for me, it's the most clear of the ancient uh details coming through is that all hallows eve is just the beginning and we can talk about what that beginning is in terms of everything that happens on all hallows eve which we will but it runs right through starting on the first so it's like christmas eve and the the uh feast of the harvest is another name for sam ham mm -hmm. uh, and it runs from november 1st to november 11th now, if that day rings familiar with people, that is Remembrance Day uh, for veterans and, and remembering the dead from the ending of World War I on November 11th. And that's not a coincidence that they picked that for the day. And then to celebrate it, it's on, on the 11th day, on the 11th hour, in the 11th month. Mm -hmm. And that's three prime numbers put together that equals another prime number, which is 33. 
which is just absolutely reeks of secret societies and occultist, cultic uh, Gnosticism and things like that. And that's not a coincidence. And the poppy is a significant part of the World War One remembrance. And I reside in Canada and everybody wears a poppy over this period. Uh, and what's interesting about this period is that poppies were also important in prehistory. And you can see these sort of bundles of plants that people that the gods are carrying around and they're actually taking it for induced uh, sleep. And it's, you know, has a whole bunch of relationships to gods like Hypnos, who's the personification of sleep, and Morpheus, which is one of the gods of sleep, and all the other different gods. And of course, if Morpheus rings a bell, that's the character in the Matrix. Right? Yes. And, mm -hmm. and again, we shouldn't be surprised that you have all of these names coming out of occult history and science fiction and those, those kinds of genres. But in this period, you would have... Uh, Persephone, who would be traveling to the underworld through a portal uh, to meet up with her husband, Hades, during this period and being there for a long period of time before returning in, in the spring, as I recall. So this has an ancient history, and it's, as I said, it's in all pantheons. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to spend any more time in terms of talking about the poppies unless people want me to go back to that because that's a different celebration, but it is the bookend to the start of All Hallows Eve and understanding that this has a, a basis in ancient rituals and in celebration of gods and their and their offspring. So I thought, you know, I would lay that just down for people as an understanding that this has a personification that is a little different than just the Celtic view. That's a more modern kind of presentation that mm -hmm. is relying on that same sort of history. And all of the celebrations around the world have kind of moved over to uh, the same time period if they had other ones. So like the Romans, for example, had Feralia for honoring the spirits of the dead in February that you know, in about 43 AD, they move that in line with this celebration that starts with All Hallows Eve. Or you have uh, Dea Los Muertos, which is starting on uh, October 31st or All Hallows Eve, but it goes to November 2nd. So it's part of the whole thing. So you can just sort of just quickly understand that this is something that goes on all over the world. And it's not as much a celebration of the gods in polytheism. It's more of a connection to their offspring. And so before I move on, I thought I would, I'd let you in and just make sure that, um, you know, there aren't some other things you want me to clarify or you've got some questions on that. Oh, no, I'm, I'm taking the notes so that I can say to people, <clears throat> um, from days old, and there's they've been into numerology, and now he's spelled it out how the you know, one eleven and all that stuff comes up to thirty three. This is an important part of the occult, and even people in the United Nations World Economic Forum, they even came out and said people need to start studying numerology. Just saying, it's not a conspiracy, right? Theory anyway, yep. right? Ge Geomancy, and number mysticism, 
the high math that goes into quantum mechanics, it's all sort of the same type of thing. So yeah. there's different avenues and uses for numbers, but it's all about the same directional uh, mystical aspect to, in terms of what, why they're developing uh, these sciences and what they're trying to do with it. Right. So you have the Day of the Dead sort of thing, right? You mentioned that sort of a minute ago, right? And we, what, what I'm seeing anyway in our popular culture is it's kind of slowly scooting aside our version of Halloween and bringing in this Day of the Dead artistry and whatnot more, being more prevalent nowadays. Do you, do you see that? Because that's what I'm seeing in the entertainment industry. So, and you would probably see a lot of that manifested in zombie movies. Mm -hmm. as being the undead or horror movies and, and, and things like that and connections to to the other world. So, you know, the Day of the Dead is uh, really about demons as they're coming through these portals. And that's going to be uh, a significant detail as, as we move forward. So, but there's a few different aspects of it. So one of the things that you see in the Day of the Dead, or Las Day of Las, or Dea de los Muertos, if I pronounce that right, and forgive me mm -hmm. if I'm butchering uh, the Spanish language, um, <laughs> yeah. they were, they put this white makeup all over their face, mm -hmm. and shamans and medicine men in Native American. South American, Central American, and all around the world where they use shamans and medicine men, they would do the same thing with their face. And, and, and there's a relationship there. So if you understand that the dead that are coming out are these pale sort of spirit, spirit things, and you understand that from a Christian perspective, people don't wake up. They right. go to sleep. They don't wake up. It, when they're dead until until the resurrection, that these are spirit beings that are coming across and mm. through the portals. And that is an allegory for the pale white skin of the giants. Uh -huh. And so a shaman is going to be an avatar of mm. one of two possibilities in terms of what they're going to receive. And the shaman or the medicine man uh, is going to have either a fallen angel or a god uh, avatar him and provide him extra wisdom. And that's going to be kind of a symbiotic relationship. But a demon, yeah. when it does it, is a whole different ballgame because it wants a physical body to live in so it can interact in the world. Now, it may provide some knowledge, but usually it's uh, a, basically a war going on. So people in the occult need to be very, very careful if they're inviting these spirits into them that it would be, let's say, a god or a fallen angel as opposed to a demon because the demon thing rarely works out. And so that's what's being reflected in this pale white aspect, as, as do minds, where they're both taking on a spirit of a trickster god. That is providing uh, okay. this knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's the same ideology that you have in masks uh, that are in the theaters. And so in the theaters, 
you have in the West, and as you get out of Greek mythology and Roman, not Greek mythology, Greek history and Roman history, and in that effects where they wear masks in theater, that is hiding the true nature of what's below. And typically, the characters being described in theater are ancient heroes and bloodlines of the Nephilim and the Raphaim. And now that sort of bring that a little bit together, when you have a demon spirit, that is the bodiless spirit of a Nephilim or a Raphaim. And in the tradition of Enoch, in the book of Enoch, it talks about these angels, I mean, these Nephilim who died because Genesis 6-3 limits their life to 120 years, even though they re received an immortal counterfeit spirit from the fallen angels. Their yeah. bodies die, but their spirits aren't permitted to go to sleep. Mm. Right? So they're going to roam the earth. Some of them are put in the abyss, as in Ezekiel 31 and 32, where it talks about these Raphaim spirits that are along the sides of the abyss, or in Isaiah 14. A couple other chapters will make that same reference. But we know a lot of them aren't, and those are just the terrible ones, again, that are talked about in those passages. Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. just as King Habata of the Cedar Forest of the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of these terrible ones. Yeah. And the, the branches of these terrible ones. It's the worst of the ones that go down into, into the abyss. But as in Jesus' time, you have these demons roaming around. And Jesus is, was dealing with all of these demons, and Legion being the most famous of, of those. And yeah. he described these evil spirits, which are the demon spirits, as you take that back into Greek. You, you get a quick understanding that what he's talking about, that, that they go to uh, places, uh, dry places, and that they're thirsting to have a body. They need an oiketarian. They need a okay. dwelling place for the spirit to interact. And that yeah. word comes out of Jude 1, 6, habitat, where the angels left their habitation. And that's the word oiketarian, which means a dwelling place for the spirit. And then 1 Corinthians 5, the only other time oiketarian is used is, is the house of heaven or the house that is in heaven that's oiketarian and that's the dwelling place for the spirit and it's talking about wearing the clothing of heaven and the clothing of the earth so if an angel wants to interact in the earth physically it needs to take a physical characteristic to interact so that it could have sex as in creating the, uh, the nephilim and the raphaim or right. eat and do things like that but it's going to be affected by the corrupted world the world they corrupted and the nephilim if they want to interact they need to possess a body to continue to interact and that that's where you get into the difference and so as you roll those two concepts a little bit forward then if you look at the theater masks that are used in china Okay. And if somebody wants to Google Chinese theater masks, you're going to see all sorts of different kinds of, and, and those ones are mostly Greek and Roman masks. These ones are very colorful. And uh, yeah, there, there's a few up there right now. These are masks of the demon spirits. And so in Taoism, they have a tradition very similar to the Greek hero and hero worship tradition where when that hero or Nephilim died, because a hero is the offspring of a god and a human female, so like Hercules or Theseus or 
um, Atlas and all of the ones that people are familiar with. When they died, they would go back and haunt the city that they reigned from because they were kings and warriors. And the people would do rituals and things to stave off this uh, evil spirit that used to be a hero or a Nephilim because it is upset it can no longer participate in the same way that it did when it had a physical body. So right. those theater masks in Taoism, they, they call these the vagabond ghost spirits and they used to put talisman and do things over the doorways to protect themselves from, from these demons. And that's the, the demon mask. It's the rulers and the elite that theater is always written about. And those are the ones with the mask, whether it's, but it's what's interesting about the Chinese ones is they show uh, more of a demonic sort of look to them. Yeah. And yeah. also that's connected in that sort of same shaman theater mask, mime, day of the dead look is the court jester. And the uh, court jester would be like a shaman, it would be a priest. It would be a warlock. And they were before the court of the rulers. And it was to help keep the uh, rulers and the kings humble and that they could also be hidden from the Roman church and continue with their occultic rituals and ceremonies for the bloodlines of the Nephilim, which are the royals um, and all of the kings and the elite and the whole nobility class. And that they also developed and worked on alchemy. And so they wore this white face and these crazy uh, sort of uh, hats and things and but yeah. it's that white face aspect, which is the connection. And they would have that trickster spirit as well. And they would be avataring this type of information. Now, part of that avataring could just be in communication with the spirits as opposed to allowing it in and receiving knowledge, which is you know part of what the Rosicrucians kind of believe and how they try and get at it, which would be more similar to what the court gestures were. They would have been Rosicrucians. Uh, mm -hmm the secret societies, which were pure bloods as well. But if they displeased the king, they would take a knife and they would slit their uh, mouth open and make a big uh, smile. Like and that. Huh? Now you have that white face and all of a sudden now you get that character in Batman, which is the Joker. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, that is a, a direct connection that we'll come back to maybe a little bit later about how superheroes are based on demons or, and or the original Nephilim archetype. Yes. yes. So Batman now would be the superhero in the movie. And of course, Joker is an archetype of, of a chemical wizard and somebody who's uh, you know, been disfigured. But back in the Kishamaya tradition of the ancient world, they had offspring that were produced called Zibelba, and they were bird-like Nephilim. And they lived in the underworld as well. Z-I-B-A-L-B-A. -A. Uh, so you won't probably get a good picture on that, but there's a division of this bird nephilim, and bird nephilim also are tengu, T-E-N-G-U, and typically in Southeast Asia where they have this bird light look. But the one you want to Google as well in connection with the Joker, 
is Camazots, C-A-M-A-Z-O-T-Z, because that's the branch of the bat nephilim in the Zibalba. And when you Google that, you're going to bring up a picture that has the image of Batman. There we go. There we go. So, and we're going to come back to about more of these superheroes, you know, as, as the show comes up or as, as people want it. I just wanted to finish off this kind of aspect with the last aspect of the representation of this mask, this makeup, this white face, this decoration of the face. And it brings uh, up the crazy clown connection. Remember yeah. how, how you have these evil clowns that were very, very popular just a few years ago well it has this history in the same roots yeah and so the clowns have the crazy wisdom that comes from certain aspects of this and generally the evil part of it or from the demonic side and they are trickster spirits as well that's within them and so they're reflecting that same look of not who they are but what's in them Right, which is the whole ideology behind all of this makeup and masks. So when you understand that the crazy clown look and the evil clown look is an extension of that whole traditional imagery, and then you wonder, you know, how is it possible that we've got this type of thing that entertains children and is in circuses and yeah. is, you know, in cartoons and all sorts of things. And it's part of the brainwashing that goes on for the acceptability. Now, typically they don't show the evil clown. They make it look like a happy clown, but it's got, yeah. you know, that slid up, <laughs> you know, like the Joker wears. I mean, it's showing right. their imagery. People just don't understand the language that the occultists are speaking when they use taciturn language, let yeah. alone when they use language that is of words and things. But they are telling their history, their belief system, and their genealogies in the writings they do, in the buildings they make, in the imagery that they make. So both in writing and in uh, taciturn imagery that they show absolutely everywhere, and it's shown in, in plain sight. So I just thought I would leave it that. But thing to focus on here as we sort of connect through Halloween is that trickster spirit. Right. Right. Yeah. And you brought up everything that I probably would have brought up anyway, <laughs> except for certain things in different cultures that I didn't know. Uh, so that's great. And here goes Harlequin, uh, dressed up like a clown, just like the Joker. Um, but she's obviously a female spirit. Very interesting stuff here. And of course, you got you have children dressing up as this stuff on Halloween and other days as well. Um, these. People don't understand, I don't think, at least not all, but, you know, they're unaware about all of the demon or fallen angel spirits that are actually attached to these things. So I try to bring this sort of knowledge to awaken people about these holidays, especially this holiday and everything that's correlating with it regarding spirits they know nothing about. And they want to say, "Oh, it's just, um, it's just innocent fun. We're not, we're not participating in the dark side. No, no, it's just innocent fun." I, yeah, yeah. I agree. But go ahead. <laughs> so when we talk about the trickster spirit, 
And understanding yeah. that clowns show up in that disguise for All Hallows' Eve in one of the costumes, and it's just sort of one of many. Uh, and obviously the superheroes are also a big part, but it goes further yeah. than that. So let's just talk about the trickster spirits uh, in terms of three different categories of them. So you have trickster gods, for example. Um, you're going to have like Sun, Sun Wong in China. You're going to have Anerta and Vela. You're going to have Hermes. And you're going to have lower level gods as well that are like Loki, which would be the offspring of uh, the gods and a human female. And Loki would be the name that Luke Skywalker was named after for uh, Star Trek. And he was called Loki. Skywalker in oh, you mean, mythology. Oh, Star Wars. L O K I. Yeah. 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 That's the character that Luke uh, Skywalker was based on. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that one. Yeah. And you have mm -hmm. the werewolf mythology. And werewolf is a trickster shapeshifter spirit. Now, the story of werewolves, and they're deeply connected to dog Nephilim as well, but kind of a different branch. And, and uh, a different, they're similar but a little bit different, even though they kind of get conflated. So, yeah. you have in Greek mythology the god Zeus again, who is also kind of a trickster god, uh, who has a king Lycon who goes awry of what Zeus wants him to do. And so, Zeus takes revenge out on him and turns him and his whole family. Uh, into werewolves, which are trickster yeah. spirit. And so again, you have werewolves that are part of All Halloween's costumes as well, as well for obvious reasons. Yeah. You also have leprechauns, which are part of the mischievous uh, elementals of the little people. And the fairies have four different categories. The fourth category is made up of the elementals, which has three groups of little people. And so the leprechauns are uh, part of that trickster, trickster spirit, but you've got a whole list of leprechauns uh, or little people that are in there, like the Menohe out of Hawaii, for example. And uh, I won't go through all the names, but again, these are part of the occult belief system and the creations that are created by the angels before and possibly again after the flood that show up in all of our uh, literature and history. Uh, and with the trickster group, they're part of two other groups. There's a good looking group of fairies and there's a good, there's an ugly group of fairies. And people might know the gnomes as part of the ugly ones or the trolls or the hobbits yeah. or the dwarves. And they show up a lot in, you know, Lord of the Rings. And so the hobbits, yeah. Uh, and not the hobbits, the dwarves would make the weapons for uh, the gods and for their offspring. And the gnomes are the ones who look after the knowledge and the genealogies yeah. and the technology. And they actually have one group that's called within the gnomes, uh, the greys. And the greys have flying machines and they come through portals where the spirits tend to come through as well. And they kidnap people for a fortnight, as they're known as the Grey Neighbors in, in Scotland. And they do sexual experiments on people, return them, and the descriptions of them are identical to 
the gray aliens that you have in the alien mythos. So again, you have in Hollywood in the celebration of these violations against creation, you have all sorts of elves and fairies and gnomes and hobbits and pixies and brownies. And again, this is a legacy of little people that goes all around the world with the same three groups that goes right back into prehistory that is totally unaccounted for and it intermeshes into uh, the aliens, which are also used for costumes on All Hallows Eve. No coincidence there. Yes, yes. That, this is fascinating because I didn't, I could never, I would never think of that connection because I never heard of the, the little greys. All I've heard of is just the gray aliens. So thank you for that. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are shocked by that. But I mean, if they don't know, uh, this is very fascinating because, you know, I'm working on something dealing with aliens <laughs> um, and I didn't go into the research, but this is this is really good stuff here. Yeah, it's um, actually a fourth group. That's the uh, reptilians or the salamanders, but typically the three that are part of what everybody knows as the fairies are uh, the ones. And that's the fourth group of the fairies. And so the first group are the ones that come from other planets and they're like yeah. the gods. They're like the gods of the Tuatha de Danan, the fairy people, which are the offspring of the gods and a Nephilim. Uh, character. So when you have blonde hair and blue eyes and red hair and green eyes with pale skin, both of them, that's the characteristic of the Tuatha de Danan, which are the fairy people and the offspring of the gods and the tribe of Anu and or uh, the goddess, if you want to cross pantheons, because they're all the same pantheon. Diana is the queen of fairies in, in, in the Roman uh, pantheon. And, you know, Queen of the little people and queen of the of the, of the giant uh, Tuatha Dé Danann as well. That's the tribe of Anu that I talked about, and these ones they migrated to Scotland and England, and also up the Danube River to Norway, Sweden, Germany, and uh, in into Russia. And of course, Vlad the Impaler, who Dracula is based on. Again, vampires are also part of all of this, and, and vampires yeah. are another allegory and I'll, I'll, I shouldn't go too far down on that rabbit hole right now, but he's part of, it takes his bloodlines back to the uh, Scythians, which are the Tuatha de Danan as well. And he is the individual that Dracula is based on and who Prince Charles takes his genealogy back to, just to make some quick connections there. Okay. So wow. the, the, the third group of the fairy groups are the, Banshees, the phantoms, and the demons. They're the bodiless spirits of the uh, Tuatha Danann, who are the earthborn uh, demigods. And demigod, as you take that back to prehistory, is the offspring of a god and a human female. I think I mentioned that earlier. So yeah. again, you get all of that sort of imagery and stuff that is also coming through. And while we're on the Tuatha Danann, uh, let's talk about Jack of the Lantern. And probably most people have heard a lot about where the jack-o'-lantern comes from. Typically, it's related to the trickster spirit, and this is part of the Nephilim trickster spirits that become demons. And so Jack is a hero to Arthur de Danan of the fairy mythos out of Ireland. Uh -huh. And so Jack tricks the devil a couple of times, mm -hmm. um, which 
and I won't go into all of the details of what he's doing to trick, trick him, but uh, at the end of the day is that he really gets the uh, devil upset at him. And yeah. what happens is when Jack dies, uh, the devil will not permit his spirit to go into Hades or the underworld. Okay. And God won't permit him, his spirit, to go to heaven, which is exactly what First Enoch talks about, that bodiless spirits of the Nephilim don't go to sleep and aren't allowed into heaven. And so the devil is forcing him in this mythology to wander the earth. Forever. Okay. Yeah. And what he gives them is a turnip with two slits in it and they put a light or oil in it and light it and uses that to light his way and in north america turnips weren't as popular as the pumpkin or as easily grown it's more of a european and particularly east european and or a gourd that was used in some traditions in europe as well and so the pumpkin replaced the turnip for the ideal carving of the jack-o-lantern yeah. So this is a Nephilim spirit that is walking the earth and is part of All Hallows Eve when the spirits come through the portals uh, in All Hallows Eve that Jack the Lantern, Jack of the Lantern is based on. Now, the word Jack is uh, very, very interesting in itself because Jack in its occult version and its occult history as opposed to, you know, the name that derives from James and Jacob uh, means a spirit and like a, an evil spirit. Yeah. Right. So right. it and it's an archetypical spirit that goes back into in, into history. So you've got like a jack in the box, which has this evil spirit and this crazy right. clown that comes out. There's a reason why they named it a jack in the box. Or if you've got Jack Frost, where the demon spirit gets into the snowman and makes it come to life. Now they show, you know, a pleasant feature of that, but the underlying message is is that Jack is is a spirit, and Jack is also what was interesting that I found was used in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean for Jack Sparrow. And Sparrow was the nickname for Jack Ward, as the, the history goes. And this is about an individual that's going back and forth between the underworld and humanity like a demon spirit. And, you know, that, that is not a coincidence. They used Jack for characters to reflect that kind of name. Sorry, you wanted yeah. to say something? Yeah, because in Pirates of the Caribbean, I think it was uh, number four. We see Jack going into the underworld. If it wasn't number four, it was number three. And then he comes back up and the, they kind of have this upside down uh, motif that you always see in these in these movies and TV shows. So that you bring that up and like, oh snap. This is <laughs> yeah. it's funny to me because I'm I'm watching all this stuff and I'm figuring stuff out as I'm slowly, you know, getting <laughs> into the themes and whatnot. But I wouldn't have come up on this just, you know, by cursory research. Go ahead. Yeah, they just, and again, people need to understand that the complexity and the interrelationships of the terms and the words and the entertainment and how they talk through it is, is well-planned and it's been happening since the beginning of time. So yeah. you shouldn't, 
even though if you're awakening, if people out there might be awakening to some of these ideas, understand this is everywhere. It's, yeah. it's just pervasive how much they have it. So as a trickster spirit of the demigods, um, Jack was very cunning and quick, just as all Nephilim were, which is why he thought he was, you know, almost on the level of, 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 of a fallen angel. And you also have another connection that will, I'm bringing it into the Celtic uh, history of Halloween a little bit more as we go. But I just mm -hmm. wanted to, I wanted to put all, you know, a number of the backdrops up. So there's a character called the Jack O green or the jack of the green which is the green man oh yeah oh that, yeah oh, oh, right. green guy. <laughs> yeah okay and that is an allegory for the light aspect of a god named sir nunos yes yes mm -hmm. and it's a nature god and mm -hmm. it's a goat god it's a satyr god it is the same type of god as cern in the etruscan pantheon it is the same type of god in the Roman pantheon that is named Bacchus and shows up in, in Narnia. It's a satyr show up in Narnia, uh, the tales of Narnia. And it is the same god as the pen god. Mm -hmm. It's the same yeah. Azazel and Baphomet god. So again, we start to get a connection there in there and that Jack O'Green is the king or the oak king, and oak is the holy tree of the Druids and the Celts, just as an oak represents strength, as in the oaks of Bashan on Mount Hermon, where the Rephaim and the Nephilim were created. And oak is one of those uh, trees and words that is used throughout the occult, just as he's also the holly king. Uh, and Hollywood is what the wood was made out of to make the magic wands for... Right the witches and and the wizards and the warlocks and the priests and the priestesses and that's the same thing that hollywood takes to spread all of this uh, occultic uh history belief systems and genealogies and everything that, that they produce and again you shouldn't find that surprising right. and he's the king who led the hunt of sam Hen, the hunt that took place on All Hallows' Eve as well. And he, he, he is, as you marry this up, look at it as into the fairy tales where Jack shows up as a name all over the place. And the green man shows up all over the place. So yeah. where it will show up as a combination is, let's say on the green side, you would have Peter Pan, with all yeah. these little people in, and you have, guess what, a pirate in there again named Captain mm -hmm. Hook. And I'm going to come back to that pirate in just a second. And so Gawain was the Green Knight in the King Arthur Grey Tales, which is considered a fairy tale. And you have the their descendants of the Tuatha de Donan. And Guinevere is the Fairy Queen. And Arthur is the Pendragon uh, King. And the dragon is the patriarchal bloodline of the Raphaim and the Nephilim. And the fairy bloodline is the matriarchal bloodline. So you have male and female all allegorized. And you have all of these names and stories within the grail that tells two different stories. One of the genealogies back to the Nephilim. And then part of the grail bloodline that they believe also is the bloodline of Jesus of uh, Nazareth and Mary Magdalene the Da Vinci Code 
code covered within its fictional uh, book, but based on their belief system. I'm not mm. supporting that. I'm just saying that's what they put in there. Yeah. And so Robin Hood would be that green man uh, right, of the forest. Yeah. And the merry yeah. men would represent different peoples of their belief system. And Mary and Maid Marian is Mary Magdalene, and that is Jesus and Mary in exile as part of this sort of royal bloodline. And so they mix all of that in, in terms of their, their literature and their names as you mix in connections between jack-o'-lantern, jack as a spirit, jack as also being jack of the green. They just layer it and interconnect it in ways that people just have never thought about it. Yeah, uh, I, I bought up uh, one a, a minute ago dealing with a comic book. Um, I think you saw it there, um, Swamp Thing. You know about Swamp Thing? Nope. This guy right here, a green yeah. forest yep. creature. He's from the swamp. Yep. You know, you know. Yep. I pretty much see the same iconography here. Um, yeah, yeah it's know? interesting. I'm not. I'm not sure whether that's supposed to be a reptilian type of figure or not. Uh, it could be or could not be, but. They also have a tradition of the chimera monsters, right? So yeah. the modern day one would be Frankenstein. Uh, King Habata would be uh, of the Cedar Forest would uh, be another chimera type Nephilim figure, uh, mm -hmm. just as a unicorn would be a chimera kind of horse. It would be a giant horse to, afford a, uh, to support a Nephilim because it was created before the flood for the Nephilim kings and to do battle with. And its horn, which would be over a cubit long, was uh, set into the, the, the horse's head and it would be able to rip out the stomach of an elephant. So it would be a huge animal and it had the feet of a goat and I think a tail of a lion, so a chimera. So traditionally yeah. people know chimera as the Greek version, but this is sort of transcends uh, a lot of uh, cultures in terms of these monsters that are created that are more chimera-like. And so you have uh, this unicorn, which is part of the fairy mythos as well. And unicorn is a word that's inserted into the King James Version Bible for yeah. uh, the word rem, Hebrew word rem, which mean, actually means wild uh, bull or ox. And uh, so they've overlaid that occult meaning into what our understanding of a unicorn and made it really nice and pleasant but it's you know it has a history that goes back to the nephilim before the flood and yeah. this unicorn is embedded in king james's um coat of arms right so uh, yeah. it's uh, you, you just can't make this stuff up yeah yeah it's interesting because i i never really looked back into the um unicorn mythos and here we have this um engravement here or whatever it is artwork same yep. thing as you're describing there yep. interesting yeah, typically typically in history it would have a red head uh, and, a, red. and a white body and a bearded uh under chin so oh there it goes uh, there, there are some images yeah yeah that would be more similar that one doesn't have the goat hooves so but right right yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Keep going. I, I don't want to take away too much time from you. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we bring that sort of understanding uh, back into 
the Celtic version where uh, the North American celebration is uh, based in for the most part, uh, you know, with some additions and, and, and evolutions uh, that were going, you have uh, a conflation of and an acceptance of All Hallows Eve into Christianity by the Roman Church as it starts to merge some celebrations in there. And I think that's where it starts to get a toehold of, of acceptability in Christianity. So in somewhere between 7800, Pope Gregory III moves All Saints Day from May to uh, November 2nd. So All Souls Day, as it's also called. And they would celebrate it like Samhain in that same festival period, period understanding it goes from the 1st to the 11th, after All Hallows' Eve, they would uh, light bonfires and wear costumes. And so you yeah. can see how you get a conflation of that. And, and that the, really starts, yeah, and by, by 1,000, it's, it's almost fully integrated. And it's been with us kind of ever since. And even so, similar on All Souls Day, children went from door to door to collect soul cakes and prayers for the spirits in purgatory. And they would light a turnip um, hollowed out and put fat in there as they went from door to door for that. So again, you get uh, you know, a similar type of ritual type of thing as what's going on with uh, the door to door knocking of children today that brings in the occult side of it and to get all to get all of the candies. Yeah. Um can you explain to people what the bonfire really is? Um where it came from? Just briefly if you want to, um, because I know what it means, but you know, I'm pretty sure you can explain it better. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. as we look at the history of uh Sam Hen, uh, um, and as, as, as we get out of the Celtic history, on All Hallows' Eve, uh, you would have the priests and the wizards knocking on the doors of the nobility, and they would ask for a trick or a treat. Mm -hmm. And so if they, the treat would be that they would get the servant. Um, if they refused, then what they did was they would uh, they would draw a circle in blood with a pentagram as a sign for these demon spirits coming through the portals uh, on All Hallows' Eve uh, to go and assault that house. Now, if they got the treat, that was the servant. And then the servant was taken and it had a choice to accept uh, a challenge of trying to bob for apples in a uh, cauldron of boiling water and or oil, depending on which uh, version that you're getting. And yeah. so even if they, if they got the apple, they would be free, but they would be maimed. If they, if they were uh, refused, uh, then they... Uh, they would be taken away, or if they failed, they would be taken away to uh, the uh, wicker man where they were lit on fire. And that's where the wicker man starts to intersect in um, the Halloween celebrations. Yeah. So 
when so when we look at how all of this starts to intersect, then you have you know all of the witches and you have the wizards uh, out there going from house to house and they're looking for sacrifices and they're using the fat of the people that are that they're sacrificing to light these lanterns to go door to door. So it is absolutely a horrific um, ritual that, uh, that, that, that they were celebrating. Right, and then the, the bonfire turns out to be really bonfire. Yes, it was actually bonfire. So when they, when they burnt them, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was this bonfire that they were lighting. And again, right. that was in celebration of their gods and of the uh, demon spirits that were coming off. And these bonfires were also used for themselves toward uh, to satisfy those spirits coming through so they wouldn't harm them. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And uh, I mean, the people are going to say, you know, well, we're not, we're not, you know, um, sacrificing people. We're not, you know, doing those sorts of things. We're, we're far removed from all that. But are you <laughs> really? Because this day is the highest holy day uh, in Satanism, witchcraft, whatever. This is the day, and this is it. Yeah. Kids get kidnapped. I don't know what they go through, but they found bodies before, and it's not pretty. Yep. So, um, this is not the '80s anymore, where we had the, uh, the satanic panic, and it wasn't widespread. A lot of kids go missing, and we're, and it's not UFOs. Go ahead. Yeah. So superheroes is another big part of entertainment and costumes for Halloween. So let's take Superman as an example. Yeah. And Superman is, uh, you know, we know him as Superman and Clark Kent, but his name when he comes from Krypton is, and again, that's got allegories as this hidden, uh, hidden planet, but he's from the house of El, yeah. Dor-El and Dural. As, mm -hmm. as he and his father are known as. And El is the uh, Hebrew word number 410, as I recall, um, singular E-L for a god or an angel. Oh, so, Yeah, so Superman is the son of Jor-El, or Dur uh, son of Dur-El, sorry, and uh, he is the offspring of the house of El, which makes him a demigod and mm -hmm. a Superman, right? Yeah. And then he's got this big S on his chest. It's like a snake, right? And the watchers were thought to be seraphim angels who have the face of a serpent. And of course, that's yeah. where the dragon imagery comes from because they've got six wings. It's a heavenly dragon as opposed to uh, a physical dragon in the physical realm that serpents used to be. They used to walk and talk and also have wings before the Eden incident. And so uh, all of the imagery of this uh, son of God to save humankind is wedded into Superman. And again, it's for that misdirection and for that brainwashing of people uh, to accept these ideas in terms of when this information is going to be prevented. So if you look at all of the superheroes, we already talked about Batman or yeah. any of the serpent type of superheroes that you might have out there. And you have, uh, you know, a recent one that was really popular and, and it's unfortunate, you know, the actor who played it died. He was uh, the Black Panther 
And oh, yeah. And that is the offspring of the goddess Bast, which is a, yeah. a lion type of, of goddess. And uh, specifically, that's where Bast comes from. And Bast is, you know, has a huge occult sort of history to it. And it's part of a set of lion types of gods that also produced Nephilim, just as the Nephilim produced by the seraphim angels had that serpent faced look. Um, and Google Akhenaten. And, that, and he's 1200 to 1400 BC, and he's got those serpentine looks. And he, that's a diluted bloodline because Nephilim created before the flood were somewhere between, you know, 3000 and 3500, and let's say 2300 or so after the flood. So at least a thousand years later of dilution, he's got this mm -hmm. protruding chin, these high cheekbones, these large eyes that sort of wrap around that would have glowed and lit up a room and this elongated yeah. skull. I mean, he's, he's, he's an offspring of a seraphim watcher. There's just yeah. no doubt about it. He's got that serpent look back to the, uh, uh, the, 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 what's that? How you spell that? Um, A-K-E-N-H-A-T-E-N, -E as I recall. Should, should okay. uh, get you close enough. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, if you Google a picture of one of his statues, you're going to get that serpentine look. So okay, some it. of the other lion gods that were alongside a bass would have been Mahis out of the uh, Egyptian pantheon or Nergal out of the Sumerian pantheon. They produce lion type of warriors. So that's where the lion men of Moab, Moab come from or the lion men of Gad. And again, yeah. I've got... When I talk about these different kinds of Nephilim, I've got documents on this for people if they want them and links to the pictures that you can you can Google yourself, but I got them all in one place. And so you've got several different kinds of Nephilim that were out there and all of these types of super are, are what superheroes are designed after and or the DNA modified superhero, which is the other one, which is that uh, Chimera type of effect as well. That's not part of the monsters. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what, what's uh, interesting about this depiction here? Uh, if you can see, oh, I'm not even showing you. There you go. Uh, <laughs> it just reminds me of uh, the Queen of Heaven, the Black Madonna. I, I've never seen this depiction before. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's yeah. That's the uh, looks like the uh, the Isis figure, and again, look at that elongated yeah. skull, and that would be Horus there. And versions of that is what was adopted into Christianity for Mary and the baby Jesus. Um, yeah, yeah, into the Catholic Church and whatnot, and all the places. Yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. <laughs> so again, I I'll just sort of wrap some of this up with. Uh, all the different kinds of costumes, the most popular ones that are used and mm -hmm. bring it kind of home. Possibly. So you've got ghosts, which are very, very popular. That's the Nephilim demon spirit. You've got vampires, which are like the upiers of Lilith and the night operators and uh, the dragon bloodline that splits into two with Lilith being the matriarchal side on the fairy side and uh, the dragon being the, you know, of the, of the dragon serpent uh, seraphim gods as being on the parent side that create the bloodlines of, of, of the kings. And 
you have goblins and all sorts of elves. And remember, we talked about the ugly parts of the elementals. Well, these little people were created to do certain things for the gods and the demigods. They all had a role, right? And so anything that's got to do with a fairy, whether it's particularly the little ones, uh, they all had a role. And of course you have, you know, the fairies, which also brings out the fairy godmothers and the fairy princesses and things like that, that people would yeah. dress up as, right? And yeah. you've got witches that people like to dress up of white witches, black witches. It's all part of the dualism of, of, of polytheism, you know, dualism in the macro sense where uh, you have good versus evil. That's in a perpetual war. But at the lower level, you've got good magic and black magic. You've got white witches. You've got black witches. You've got good Nephilim. You've got bad Nephilim. It's a duality that is at the sort of the, the lower level. And of yeah. course, wizards and Merlins and things like that. Merlin is just, as its name is he named in King Arthur, is just a wizard. That's why he looks like those Atlantean wizards, um, and the same type of wizard that shows up in in Lord of, of the Rings. And these and, are the Magi and the priests, and it's it's just an allegory for for their heads of their religions. Go ahead. And in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Gandalf is also called Mithriandel, which goes into Mithra and Mithraism and all that other stuff. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, and both Tolkien and Lewis were uh, initiated into the mysteries from childhood. They're mm -hmm. part of pure bloodlines. And so they're a part of an, an Inklings writing society at Oxford, which was sponsored by the Rosicrucian Golden Dawn Order. Mm. Now, th this is when they're at a young age, and everybody says, well, there's no record that they were Freemasons. And I would 100% agree with that. They had royal bloodlines. They were adepts before they were allowed to accept the title of adept they would be an adept declared close to the age of 30 just before the age of 30 whereas freemasonry is the lowest level of the hierarchy and they're introducing very low level bloodlines and things like that and you have to become an adept at the third degree york right or the 33rd degree scottish right and above that are several other levels tolkien and lewis would have been above a third degree york right uh, York Rite or 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemason. Mm. And so I have a six part series of documents on Tolkien and Lewis. Parts five and six trace their bloodlines. And mm. so that starts to make sense of all of the occult knowledge that they had that they could load up, like Tales of Narnia or The Lord of the Rings, with, with all of their occult knowledge that they had learned from childhood. The writing society was just to develop the craft yeah and so again uh, if you understand that they've loaded it with it so like aslan for example in narnia is an incarnation the christ consciousness aspect is an incarnation and yeah. aslan is based on the hindu relation of this understanding of avatar and avatar that we talked about yeah you have vishnu who would avatar like Buddha, for example, as one of his uh, avatars. Uh, 
and uh, give wisdom to Buddha to be as one of those sent on the path to help humans evolve into godhood as as the as the polytheist belief goes yeah. well on the shiva side which is the destroyer god same as abaddon and uh, polyon in revelation 9 that's in the abyss and who i think is azazel he also was an avatar avatar and used yeah. avatars and one of them was narashima n-a-r-s-h-i-m-a -A. that's a lion god and this was yeah. his incarnation into that lion God in this Christ consciousness aspect that we talked about for Antichrist in the end time. And also understanding that unicorn is the one horned beast that rose up in Daniel 7 between the ten horned kingdom and is the one horned king of the end time in Daniel 8. So understand all of these allegories are there for, for preparation. And this is an incarnation that Aslan is based on. A Christ consciousness, Gnostic, polytheist yeah. principle that is sold as a Christ figure to children. And they truly believe that as Gnostics because they don't believe that Jesus was the son of God. They believe he yeah. was sent like Confucius, like Buddha, like Zoroaster uh, and Hermes and so many more as one sent to help humankind along their along their way to godhood just as jesus used the way they will say that's their way to god right. totally different meaning they've drafted it and, and distorted it but that's what they that's what they do and so again we need to be aware of all of these different things that they're doing in the literature particularly with the children so that we can educate them and I like to just when I like I mean I'd love to watch some of these stories because they're terrific stories but I, I'm identifying what they're embedding in there yeah and of course we talked about the clowns which are mm -hmm. you know disguised magi shamans jokers jesters trickster spirits and demons that are hidden in there and oh there's Narashima right there isn't it yeah yeah, yeah so that can be and of course the monsters like the Frankenstein that's the new man concept of of the Nazis, that is the DNA modified Nephilim that they're trying to make, that they're going to be creating in the not too distant future so that our time can be like the days of Noah and the time of the end time. And of course, werewolves we've talked about are shapeshifters, just as angels are, and they're Nephilim akin to the other Nephilim, but a slightly different as they come about. And understand that you've got dog gods like and jackal gods like Anubis, who are thought to have created offspring as well, you know, and they basically had, you know, uh, uh, Sinoopolis is the city of Anubis, which where all of his dog offspring actually had lived. And okay. so again, I have a three-part series on dog Nephilim if people want that as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, if anybody has a question, just don't be afraid to ask. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Because these concepts run through and through our video games. There's a, um, there is a video game called Destiny. And it has, I think it has an Anubis pack with it. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Destiny, I spelled something wrong. But anyway, yeah, this is the Anubis pack here in Destiny. So the, the, the game is 
getting more and it, it began a cultish. <laughs> um, I had a copy of the first one. They have Destiny 2 out now for a while. And, you know, they have these, these, all of these things that you're talking about, at least some of them anyway, are in these, this video game. And um, people don't understand the, the symbolism, the connotations, um, if they should stay away or what. But yeah, it's all over there. There it goes. <laughs> you know, so. Um, I, I think uh, the, obviously the comic books, um, yeah. a lot of the right material. It, uh, in fact, um, Hawk Girl and Hawk Man are Isis and Osiris. Yep. Yeah. They, they are the ones that, um, there we go. They are the ones that they they will never be together because they can't get the fourteen part. <laughs> you know, uh, they, yeah, they, yeah. the the male phallic cannot be found, so they will never be together. Okay, and that's yeah. where that's where the term soulmate comes from. People, <laughs> soulmate doesn't mean you found the love of your life and where have you been yeah. all my life. I found my soulmate. That's not what it means. It no. means you can't get it the penis. Okay, <laughs> go ahead, sir. Well, and, you know, like Wonder Woman's based on Amazon uh, women. Those are female Raphaim after the flood and probably Nephilim uh, before the flood. So, you know, when you have like Spider-Man, that would be one of those DNA modified right. uh, creatures. And again, there's a lot of these DNA modified creatures that are made in prehistory. So they had, there was a technology that was there to do that, whether it came from the gods or it was actually a technology. And, you know, in Spider-Man, you've got, you know, you know, a lot of these DNA modified creatures, but you also have things like the Green Goblin, right? Well, yeah. that's a, fa a fairy creature again. I mean, they're just drawing on different aspects of, of these kinds of uh, characters all the time so penguin in batman for example would be again in that bird nephilim order or catwoman would be in that lion or bast line of female nephilim it, and, it, and it just goes it goes on and on and on and on and on and but to me when you have people dressing up as apollo or Zeus or Satan. Yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate, right? I mean, you're actually trying to emulate these fallen angels and, and, and these ancient gods. And again, those are very, very popular uh, costumes and names that are used throughout literature with all sorts mm -hmm. of applications and things. So, so the question that um, some people might have is, does it matter? Does it really matter? Uh, my answer is it matters in the spiritual and you're actually giving homage, honor to these spirits. What's your, what's your answer, sir? You're participating in a ritual, right? And a ritual is worshiping those gods and demigods. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody has there's, a there's, question. There's, there's, there's no getting around it. It's like yoga. And people say, well, is yoga bad? Well, it's part of a ritual. So make sure that if you're doing yoga, watch for the music that they're playing. Watch for the imagery that's around you and the things that they're saying. Preferably do it on your own if you want to do the stretches. Nothing wrong with stretches, but it's used in a ritual. That's a problem. And yoga is 
Hindu, and it's about linking with the uh, yoking with the spirits, yoking with the spirits. So you know, <laughs> it is. It's to get your mindset that you can be open to communicate with the spirits. In other words, you're inviting them in. Yeah. So a qu a question here is: Does all Hallows Eve come from the Tuatha Da Nanan? Tuatha Da Nanan. Yeah, Tuatha Da Nanan. It's certainly part of that history because they're the people who populated Ireland and Wales and uh, Scotland uh, in the in the Celtic tradition. But understand that Celtic tradition comes with them through migrations of people migrating to the islands from Scythia. So the Gauls and the Celts also migrate with them. So, but it's all, it all begins in Scythia after the flood. And then that is taken with them over there. So Tuatha Dodanan are a significant part of the All Hallowees, All Hallowees celebrations because they were the kings and the priests and the ruling class of Ireland and Wales. Got you. I hope that answers your question, sir, or lady. I don't know. Oh, it's Will. Will Tucker. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Um, it, said, that uh, might be the Will Tucker that sends me uh, questions all of the time, I think. Okay. <laughs> Same name anyways. <laughs> if it is, um, good, good huh? to hear from you, Will. If not, nice to meet you, Will, one or the other. <laughs> all right. Um, another question comes from Jesus, our creator manifested. It says... What are your thoughts on the Necronomicon? The what? The Necronomicon. I am not familiar with that. Uh, is that the are Book of the Dead? With that? I think that's the Book of the Dead. Um, is that about? Is that about? Yeah, it's got to be about necromancy. Yeah. 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 Well, I've not read it. I've I've not read it uh, that particular book. Uh, I am familiar with with necromancy. Um, so again, anything that's got to do with the dead and necromancy is about getting into spirits and, yeah. uh, you know, as, as a Christian, you're, you, I mean, you're, you're kind of forbidden to do that just as King Saul was rejected and admonished for, uh, using a, a medium to, uh, try and raise up the spirit of, of, of Samuel. So, um, so in that case, it's. You know, you understand that it's a possibility you can raise a human from the sleep, but Samuel obviously goes back to sleep. Uh, but typically the necromancy is dealing with uh, imposters who claim themselves to be dead people. And it's actually the demon spirits that are um, uh, being the imposter there. But yes. I've not read the book, so it's hard for me to comment on what's in the book. So, yeah. Um, another question is, and I know, I know part of this answer, but <laughs> what is the origin of witches riding the broomstick? Oh yeah, that's a, um, trying to remember what the, uh, the broomstick is, is all about. Um, it's yeah, possibly, possibly, but it, it's yeah. also, uh, a magic flying stick, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it's it it has powers that that go with it. What I'm trying to remember is what it goes back to, and I think it goes back to 
um, an oak tree or or the Hollywood tree in terms of what it's manufactured of, but it yeah. has ability to come come to life. It has ability to hold spirits. It has ability to fly. Uh, it's it's also a phallic symbol in, in in its nature and between the legs of of a female witch. Um, so it has a lot of different sort of meanings to it, but. Um, it's a it's an uh not not an area that i spent a lot of time on but as i was reading those are some of the things that 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 came up on it from yeah um, anyways we're doing a study in our church on witchcraft and it was uh told that what the witches would do is they would uh they would use this to uh i just i can't say any any other way i have an orgasm okay and it would put them in a state of euphoria and supposedly, you know, supposedly they'd go flying or whatever, but maybe the flying is part of that euphoria experience. So that's a part of the, <laughs> the witchcraft yeah. Um, yeah. lore. Yeah. yeah so um, let me see. Any other questions here? Um, oh, somebody's saying something about Solomon. Solomon. Uh, what was said about soulmate? Oh, uh, you want to explain that again, sir? <laughs> I well, said you were doing the, you were explaining about uh, uh, the soulmate uh, in terms of yeah. not ever, not ever being able to have that sexual relationship because I, uh, Osiris had all of his parts sort of dispersed to the, the four winds, so to speak, and he was killed. Yeah. And but somehow that was used as well to create Horus in some sort of dead sort of ritual um, yeah. but as a soulmate that means that they're not in that sexual relationship but they're in this eternal relationship without sex yes yeah exactly yeah and just to go just a little sidestep people just to get you to understand this is pretty much the phallic the washington monument and so it comes from egypt yep. symbol symbology comes from egypt it's also in the vatican city and in Europe somewhere, I can't remember where right now, but this is the 14th piece of Osiris's body that cannot, that could not be found. And that's why the, 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 the I think it's, it's the Capitol building, that's a dome and that represents Isis's womb, Isis's womb. And so the people that built Washington was all into the occult and whatnot. And this is why this 666 foot tall phallic symbol is there to homage and it's it also goes because the the gods they switch names from culture to culture so this also has to do with Baal, this Baal shaft Baal worship and so that's the thing behind the soulmate you won't they they can't get it together man you know they can't have sex <laughs> but once they but if they were to they would be soulmates so it has nothing to do with a relationship as far as uh, modern day Washington City was was created uh, and wasn't you know there when the um, revolution took place in, in America when the independence so they created Washington City and it is created using sacred geometry and imagery that represents the Gnostic uh, belief system and so you that's why when they built the place for uh, uh, the CIA and and, and uh, not the CIA, but for the military, it's the pentagram. I mean, that's a five-pointed star, right? Mm -hmm. There's 
everything is done with sacred geometry and so you have you know the uh the domed roof on congress well yeah. you have within that domed roof the uh on the inside the apotheosis of george washington which means he rose as a spirit on his way to reincarnation to godhood and is represented as a god looking down over there that is the white domed temple of the greeks with greek architecture and the white yeah. domed temple of baal on mount hermon the temple of pan yeah it is all part of their religious uh, uh, overlay onto the city as a celebration of a city of light just as camelot is that city of light in king arthur and that's camu lot and lot comes from lot of sodom and gomorrah because in their belief system sodom was a city of light and where yeah. giants were created and a city of knowledge and so they overlay their imagery onto everything so that's why you've got such crazy angles on the streets and they can form all sorts of sacred geometry things all the buildings are lined up using angles and sacred geometry and uh, you know it's something worth if people don't aren't aware of it it's worth sort of sort of googling and looking for some of those pictures and those angles you'll be absolutely astounded at all the things they've got encoded in there yes um so they, they're having a, a conversation here going back to the witches being thing so somebody said that uh it was the arrogant that they it was like lsd for them and they rubbed it on the the, the, the witch's broom or whatnot and that's where they start tripping and have these you know <laughs> orgasms or whatnot um so it's a form of astral projection or what was it called altered states right and that goes that's that's a whole nother show <laughs> but um <laughs> someone is asking a very i think it's going to be a very long an answer but uh I, you've been talking about nephilim all night so i guess it's appropriate um, do the Nephilim have a traceable bloodline? Well, I think they do. Um, I, when, in my book, I don't uh, label it. I just talk about the bloodlines. Yeah. The Rosicrucians call it Vril. And Great. just as the Nazis did. And yeah. that's the bloodlines that go back to the giants. And they were, you know, they felt, they believed and still believe that if you could backwards engineer that bloodline, you could recreate the demigods or the giants of, of old, and they've been supposedly working on that. So when we look at that as blood today, typically people look at that as the RH negative blood. And typically RH negative blood is about 15% of the population. It has a little bit higher concentration in Northern France, not in Southern France, uh, where it reaches as high as 20 to 25%. And then with the Basques, who call themselves, like to believe in their uh, legends, to be Homo Atlantis, or the people who survived the flood and settled Egypt, Scythia, and Sumeria, and then made their home as their main home in north north part of Spain. And why there is a Basque diaspora, because those other bloodlines pushed them out in sort of a power play. 
but they have the highest concentrations of Rh negative blood reaching somewhere, depending on the study, 50 to 80%. Now, most of the royal bloodlines do have an Rh negative blood. And so the Windsors, for example, have O negative. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff out there to suggest that that's the bloodline. The trouble is when you get into the conversation of RH negative and RH positive, and that the thought is, is that this was added to the bloodline of human bloodline at some point in time, RH negative means you're missing some antigens. Okay. So how can you add something if it's missing something? And so people sort of get it locked into that and, and they need to take a step back and say, no, no, it's, it's blood is a manifestation of something else. And so in their belief system of the bloodlines, they believe in something called the gene of ISIS, which is the root word for Genesis. Gotcha. And that yeah. gene of ISIS is the spark of the divine from the DNA of the fallen angels passed through to the Nephilim passed through down the bloodlines. And that's, DNA is what produces the gene, and it's the gene that produces the kind of blood, which would produce in this line of thought the Rh negative blood. So it's the gene that's added that manifests the blood, not the bloodline that's added. And that's the thousand points of light they like to talk about in their political uh, statements of the New World Order that yeah. they want to bring together in the universal religion and, and the universal government so that they can unite that spark of the divine, as they like to call it, in the gene of Isis, so that they can evolve into godhood again, that harmonic convergence that the New Age likes to talk about. So that's how yeah. I would take that bloodline. But... Do 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 know that the all of the elite, for the most part, and the ones who are initiated for sure, if they're on the outer edges of the elite, and all of the true Masonic royal bloodlines keep their genealogies, just as I mentioned, Prince Charles can say, "Hey, Vlad the Impaler is one of my ancestors." Yeah, they have those genealogies. They have the genealogies that go back into the mists of time because. The pure the bloodline or the more enhanced with other scion pure bloodlines coming from offspring of specific angels will enhance that ennobleness of that bloodline. And that's where they'll fit in the hierarchy of the bloodlines and the hierarchy of the secret societies, which are the royal Masonic uh, organizations that the lower levels report to. And the Rosicrucians at the top are pure bloods, lower level aren't, but the top 50% are pure bloods. And mm -hmm. above that is all Royal Masons. Yeah. And, and so if you, you need to understand bloodlines and you need to understand polytheism and how that all intersects to understand the hierarchy of secret societies. And so it's that Royal bloodline and the genealogies that they keep, whether they're legitimate or not, they believe that, and it's not whether or not we believe it or not, which is important. It's that they do and what they're doing with that information. Right. And uh, these people are, are obsessive about the DNA, and uh, some of them think that they come from the line of Cain, and Cain uh, is from is Satan's seed and stuff like that. And then what you mentioned, mentioned about the um, that spark there, that 
also goes into Gnosticism, a spark of divinity, and then dovetails into the Kabbalah. Yes. And then it crosses over into Transformers. Transformers, the movie, the all spark, that thing there. So, you know, it's tra there's yep. traces of stuff all over our entertainment. Um, yep. Any more questions? Um, anyone? Uh, let us know. Um, it, I think it might be time to wrap up. Um, unless Gary has any more to add to this um, whole mystery of Halloween. I have time. I'm, I'm, I'm being, you know, I'm being cautious for your time. Yeah, no worries. No, no worries. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I love, you know, I like loved Halloween when I was young. Um, mm. And even when I was older, and I loved to carve jack-o'-lanterns. And, and it's easy to, you know, take a position where it's just meaningless. But whatever you do is do with open eyes, understand the meaning. Uh, and then understand whether or not you're doing that just for your own enjoyment or whatever, or you're actually influencing other people that could be leading them astray and they haven't taken, taken the time to understand it. And for your children, you need to educate them in this stuff uh, so that they can make better choices for themselves. Um, so I don't want to be like a party pooper on everything. I mean, I love science fiction. I love a good story. I love those things. But when I watch those things, I'm I'm decoding for myself what have they embedded in here. Uh, and if you want to get a good basis for starting to understand uh, some of that language, my book will help you do that. It will you start to introduce you to the language that they're using. And once you start to identify it, you're going to see it everywhere and you're going to go, wow, how is it possible that they're able to do this on everything, whether or not it is overlaying it on Halloween and getting us people, getting us to celebrate that or taking over a Christian holiday or Christian yeah. celebration like the birth of Christ or the resurrection and totally changing it in a way that puts their belief system right over on top of it but once you start to identify it i mean i have nothing wrong with celebrating uh, jesus birthday in december i know it didn't happen in december but for me right. you can celebrate jesus birthday every day of the year um but understand that they have a belief system where they have dragon magianic figures that they say were born on december 25 and we know jesus wasn't born on december 25 because the cattle and the sheep are in the pastures. December is the rainy season. So they would have been in the stables so that there's no way that Mary and Joseph could have had an open stable because they would have been filled with all of all the animals. And we also know that the angels were announcing it to the shepherds in the field. So yeah. the animals <laughs> were in the field. So I mean, yeah. that's just one sort of example as to what you start to have enough knowledge to start asking good questions, you start to unravel everything that that is going on. And again, we have to remember we're not to be part of this world. We're, we're going to interact with it, but right. the world is corrupt and it's there to corrupt us and it corrupts everything that is in it, except for one person who overcame it. 
Right. Um, and that's why he was able to, you know, Jesus was able to atone for our sins. But we have to understand that it's ruled by the world is ruled by Satan, who is the prince and the god of this world. Yes. And it's run by the council of gods in Psalms 82, by the nations that were set up as Deuteronomy 32 talks about the 70 nations. Um, as the same number of the sons of Jacob born in Egypt and of the same sons and nations of Adam before the flood. Mm -hmm. And those angels that were sent to the abyss who were part of that ruling council, and then ones if they did it again, which is the second incursion belief in terms of how Nephilim show up after the flood, as Rephaim, particularly as Rephaim, because Nephilim yeah. seemed to be antediluvian giants, then they would have gone to the flood. So this council of gods that is talked about in Psalm 82 has been replaced with other rebellious angels filling in for those ones who are in the abyss and understanding that those ones in the abyss are going to be released in the end time. So yes. we're going to see them again. So... We need to understand that this world is run by them and their representatives on the earth, which control most of the religions of the world, control all the governments of the world with their bloodlines and their descendants, and have been brainwashing and leading humanity astray since the beginning, and trying to bring the world into a rendezvous with destiny and deceive humankind in fighting with them against the God of the Bible. Yes, absolutely. People, kind of, people, need to, people need to understand that. Yes, yes. Uh, and it brings everything together. I mean, uh, when uh, Gary's going to be back to talk about technology and superheroes and, and maybe one other subject. So we're going to air this all out within the next couple of weeks. Um, I have, I, it looks like we have two more questions for you. Um, sure. Where did the – no, not, that's not the first question. Okay. Um, are the Native American mounds related to the fairies? Uh, kind of, yes. So the mounds are generally the serpent mounds. There are other kind of mounds, but uh, and the serpent mounds where uh, giant skeletons with red-haired skeletons were found and the Nephilim um, or the Raphaim that seem to be found in North America and down in Peru all have these elongated skulls and, and red hair and tend to be dated back uh, and connected back to the giants that migrated out of, out of the Middle East. So when we look at the, the, the occult culture of those giants that were present in North America, Central America and South America, that they were part of the same sort of culture as you go up and down different branches of, uh, of them, that you have other occult things that come up in it. You have the shamans and the medicine men and the same type of uh, religious nature that was dominant in those civilizations. You also have an association and a connection between these, the peoples of the Native Americans, the First Nations, um, and uh, again, all throughout North and South America that they fought against the giants in a lot of cases. And wherever you have giants, you have little people. And wherever you have little people, you tend to have Bigfoot. And wherever mm -hmm. you have that, you tend to have these caves and portals into other locations. 
and they're completely connected within that organizational structure and cultural structure of the creations that violated the laws of creation that were probably recreated again with Raphaim after the flood by rebellious angels. So yes, you're going to find them just as you're going to find little people connected to uh, the Bigfoot, you're going to have both of those connected to Nephilim. And another interesting thing is, is like the whoring of the, uh, the Raphaim after the flood, there were cave dwellers and Raphaim were very hairy, just as the, as the Horim were very hairy. So again, you have some other connections that would, would be there. But the big point is, is that the little people, as I mentioned earlier in the show, they looked after the knowledge for these uh, demigods, the technology and the genealogy. So they're always going to be there with the, uh, with the Raphaim or the giants and the serpent mounds in this case, and look for those portals. So take that back over to the Middle East where they came from, you have Gilgal Raphaim, which is the wheel of the giants is on the Golan Heights at the foot of Mount Hermon. Yeah. It's kind of, as we see it today, almost like an Atlantean city type of figure. But this is the same place where the Raphaim or the Raphaim of the Ugaritic texts were known as travelers that went back and forth between the underworld. And yeah. this is the same place in type of, and people that King Odd come from, who was the king of Bashan of Mount Hermon. And Gilgal Raphaim has thousands of these, not thousands, hundreds of these dolmens, which are portals, D-O-L-M-E-N. And a dolmen or a fairy dolmen, as they're also known because the fairies use the portals to come through um, are like mini Stonehenge type of structures and they're all over the world so yeah. there's, there's going to be portals and things and in those mounds you've got these areas where people think these smaller mounds within the serpent mounds are fairy mounds ah well good answer and it took a while to knit that together. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we were, like I said, we're going to come back for some more shows, but maybe later on, give Gary a break, <laughs> and we'll come back with a show specifically about giants, okay? Um, but in the meantime, you want to pick up his book. That's, it's, it's all about that, the, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and Descendants of Giants Plan to Slave mankind i i haven't finished a book but i've got through a few chapters and it's worth reading um you know you might disagree with a few things you might agree with a few things but the research has been done and i think it's a very good book and you see it here it has a um, five-star rate well close to a five-star rating which is good for any author um we have here another question and this is Watchmen for you. Uh, well, no, that's not the question. That's another. They're asking somebody a question in the chat. Where did the giants come from after the flood? We're not told in the Bible how they show up. There's basically three buckets. Somehow on the ark. And there's different ways on that. Either, you know, in some of the Gnostic accounts as uh, or Tubal King hanging on to the edge of the boat. Um, some people believe that it's through the wives. Some of the Gnostics also believe all of the inhabitants on the Ark were giants. Um, yeah. So that's the one bucket, not my favorite bucket. Um, the next one would be on an Ark. 
or on a mountain or somehow helped by fallen angels and the gods. So Epic of Gilgamesh would be a classic example where it holds the story of Upnet Pishtun being the archetypical, Nephilim being two-thirds God, one-third human, his whole family were Nephilim. And even though it's a similar story to the Noah story, the details are completely different, and it's a Nephilim survival story as opposed to a human survival story. So off-world, in the earth, off the ark, or off, off the earth, somehow the help with the angels would be that, that next bucket. My favorite one, and the one that I lean to because it, it, it holds much holds together very well with scripture and what Genesis 6 talks about in terms that uh, when the sons of God created the Nephilim and then again afterwards, I think that happened afterwards in the Antediluvian Epoch and mm. at Sodom and or Mount Hermon or both after the flood. So I, I, I lean towards second incursion in terms of how uh, giants show up after the flood. I have a great document that walks through that scripturally for people. If they want to just get hold of me through the website, genesis6conspiracy.com. And on that website, just as I'm saying, there's a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. So you'll get a good flavor for the book. And you can also link over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or to the Kindle version, or get a signed copy from me. But that's typically the, the three ways that uh, giants are going to show up after the flood. And what's uh, after the flood is those three buckets. And as I say, I lean towards second incursion. Mm. And what's interesting about the Epic of Gilgamesh is Gilgamesh is created after the flood. He's also two thirds God, one third human as, as is Anakin. So Epic of Gilgamesh actually has kind of a parallel giant account, whether or not it's based on uh, Genesis or it's a separate uh, mythos coming out of, uh, out of uh, polytheism for the same account. And and trying to describe how giants show up, but it actually has survival and second incursion, which is I kind of find kind of interesting. Yeah, um, there's another one here I just saw. Where are you? Something about oh, here it is. It's are the portals at specific ley line locations, and if so. Why, example, Mount Hermon is at 33 degrees? Well, longitude and latitude was set in 1666 by uh, one, of the, one of the kings of France, and I can't remember uh, exactly which one. Just, oops, that's not work. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, the ley lines has this sort of energy that's interconnected around and typically holy sites are built on there to attract the power. Typically though, the mounds or the portals are in different locations. So for some reasons, the connections to the underworld are at different locations. Okay. Yeah. And you'll see there, there are books out there on this stuff and some of them are weird. Okay, bringing you some weird stuff, and some of them are pretty accurate with, with the math or whatnot. But the the um, the old system they they depended on some of these ley lines to pretty much lay their kingdoms, their pyramids, their ziggurats, and all this stuff. So that's a, that's the whole show in itself. But um, it yeah. is, and and when, and we talked 
about the energy that may be how they're able to lift some of these large blocks into place, right? Which is why uh, yeah. they have those worship sites, right? So. Yeah. And speaking of energy, this will bring us on a small rabbit trail is um, Alice Bailey and Lucifer Trust, Lucifer Trust and the United Nations and how they have this monolith in there uh, on its side that it's has some sort of magnetic energy and it's a it's, a, it's inside of a prayer room. So we can only guess what they do in there. Um, yeah. What type of spirits they might be calling up in the United Nations. This little uh, nugget there for you guys. So um, no more questions. I don't see any more questions. So, Gary, I know we're supposed to do this at the beginning of the show. I totally blanked out on it. <laughs> but um, tell people where to reach you, social media, wherever. Yes. So, best place to get a hold of me is on the website at the genesis6conspiracy.com. That's the number six conspiracy.com. As I mentioned earlier, you, you can get an example of all 98 chapters and order a book there. And you can also contact me through there through an email access to contact the author. So if you have any questions or any of the documents where I've mentioning throughout the evening, if you want, uh, get those, just get a hold of me. I offer those at, at no charge. You can also get a hold of me on Facebook under Gary Wayne, that's Gary with one R, and uh, message me through Messenger or post a question uh, on my timeline. It's an open timeline or at Twitter, at GaryWayne63, at GaryWayne63. All right. Um, and um, here, Gary's been on the show before. This is the show. It's called Gary Wayne, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy and the Nephilim Gods in Entertainment. You want to check that show out because we're not going over all those topics again. We might revisit a few, but the that's a, that's a unique show on its own. Um, so you want to go check that out. Uh, you can search for it on our YouTube channel. And let me stop sharing here. I want to thank you guys for joining us. We are almost two hours here, hour, hour and 41 minutes. So I think this is one you want to bookmark and go back and take notes because that was a lot, lot that's a big memory dump right there. So um, <laughs> I, I encourage you to go back and take notes and hey, do your research, double check because this is fascinating information. And again, we pointed out it's in your entertainment and we're, and this channel is, we're about the gospel. We're about exposing the darkness, but we, we hinge on entertainment because a lot of people don't talk about it. And when they do, sometimes they're pointing you to the triangle under somebody's armpit, like that matters, you know? So we're trying to give you correct information, not, not, weird things that make us look kooky. So um, thank you guys for joining. Thank you, Gary, for joining me uh, tonight. And uh, we look forward to having you again in a, in a few, however long that is. So um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. And um, just remember, people out there, you have a commission from the Lord to spread the gospel and don't let them burn.